It's August 1979 on the scorching Nevada desert, where Marines armed with ground-air Hawk missiles are trying to score a kill against my new airplane, an experimental prototype codenamed Havblue. We in the Skunk Works have built the world's first pure stealth fighter, which is designed to evade the Hawk's powerful radar tracking. The Marines hope to find Havblue from at least 50 miles away and push all the right buttons so that the deadly Hawk will lock on. To help them, I've actually provided Havblue's flight plan to the missile crew, which is like pointing my finger at a spot in the empty sky and saying, aim right here. All they've got to do is acquire the airplane on radar, and the homing system inside the Hawk missile will do the rest. Under combat situations, that airplane would be blasted to pieces. If that defensive system locks on during this test, our experimental airplane flunks the course. Because our stealth test airplane has been under the tightest security, we've had to deceive the Marines into thinking that the only thing secret about our airplane is a black box it's supposed to be carrying in its nose that emits powerful beams to deflect incoming radar. Of course, that's bogus. No such black box aboard, no beams involved. The invisibility comes entirely from the airplane's shape and its radar-absorbing composite materials. I check my watch. Eight in the morning. The temperature, already in the 90s, heading toward a predicted high of 120. Have blue should be well inside the missile's radar track, heading for us. And in a few moments, I spot a distant speck growing ever larger in the milky blue sky. I watch have blue through my binoculars as it flies at 8,000 feet. The T-38 chase plane, which usually flies on its wing in case half blue develops problems and needs taking down to a safe landing, it's purposely following miles behind for this test. The radar dish atop the van hasn't moved, as if the power had been turned off. The cluster of missiles, which normally would be swiveling the launcher, locked on by radar to the approaching target, are instead pointing aimlessly and blindly toward distant mountains. The young sergeant stares in disbelief at the sightless missiles, then gapes at the diamond-shaped aircraft zipping by directly above us. God almighty, he exclaims, whatever that thing is, Sure is carrying one hell of a powerful black box. You jammed us dead. That was Ben Rich, the uh, former director of Skunk Works, in his book titled Skunk Works. Right. A great book. I, I read it. Uh, I read most of it, actually, just sitting here at the studio marveling at the story, basically. And uh, it's good kickoff to our next and final plane in the chapter of the That's Skunk Works right. series that we're doing. And we're going to dive into the history that surrounds this plane, but we're also going to have Jet Crouch, one of the original cadre for this plane. He was when one it of came the out first. Of testing, yes. And they were getting ready to do operational stuff with this. This guy was there. He was there. He was the guy. He's awesome one of the interview. original 10 dudes. It's a great interview. You guys are really going to enjoy it. But I think we should learn a little bit of history behind the plane first. In 1964, that's the year that the Soviet mathematician by the name of Pyotr Yustavnesev published his seminal work titled Method of Edge Waves in the Physical Theory of Diffraction. Sounds riveting. Very <laughs> catchy title, yeah, I imagine. Riveting. Yes. Um, in this paper, Peter Uftemestev published his seminal work titled Method of Edge Waves in the Physical Theory of Diffraction. Right. Which is a riveting title. You put it on the coffee table, right? Naturally. Put yeah. it on the coffee table, have some discussions, have some people over. Let's talk about the, the wave thing. <laughs> yes. So in this paper, Pieter showed that the strength 
of a radar reflection from an object is related not to its size as initially thought, but it's related instead to the edge configuration. So what you're saying is this guy, <laughs> so he discovered oh, this, this, the theory, I bet where this theory came from uh -huh. is his wife put on a dress and said, honey, do uh -huh. I look fat in this dress? Okay. He said, no, your edge theory is amazing. Yeah, no, the angles are great. <laughs> the angles, right? the angles are it's all, all good. It's all about the angles. So you focus on the angles like, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. Yeah. Okay. No, but. Seeing as how this was the Soviet Union, the only reason the paper was even allowed to be published in the scientific community was because the Soviets didn't consider that to be of any significant military value. Basically, they said, da, okay, cool, nerd, but this is all theoretical and means nothing for practical purposes. The rest of the world will think we're geniuses exactly. if we publish this. They wanted to show their scientific superiority, and they didn't think they were like getting rid of military secrets. Because if they're not interested in it, no one else will be either. Right. So Plus, they're too busy building radars and Iron Curtain and <laughs> murdering people and starving people yeah, and everything else. That they're building roads to nowhere and in the to gulags. Yeah, that was great. They're yeah. too busy doing that. So Peter, he produces this publication. It means nothing until Lockheed analysis, Dennis Overholzer, stumbled upon the work years later. You see, Peter researched that demonstrating the aircraft theoretically becomes invisible to radar by exploiting his principles of edge configuration. However, the resulting design would make the aircraft aerodynamically unstable to the extreme. Basically, no one thought you could even make one of these silly shapes even fly. Just because it doesn't, people are so tied up with what they know with how a plane looks that they just right. didn't see the shape as something that it would ever work. Exactly. But before we get any further, Let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Petrolbox. Petrolbox is your monthly source and subscription for automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications. I should say not just apparel, exclusive apparel. They had t-shirts made specifically for Petrolbox. Very cool. We just got ours this week. It's meteorological spring. The Meteorological spring. Yes, it is. So a t-shirt is appropriate. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a curated selection of kind of the latest in the industry. It's really cool. There's two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, and the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com, and be sure to use that code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. So why did the military even care about evading enemy radar anyway? Well, that's all they had. Right. I mean, that's what the, that, seriously, the Soviet threat was the fact that we couldn't touch them. Exactly. They were untouchable. And we didn't realize until basically, well, we always knew that, oh yeah, it'd be great to not be able to be detected by radar. Mm -hmm. But listen to this. After the Vietnam War, Soviet surface-to-air missiles, or SAMs, had become increasingly sophisticated and deadly. Dave Ferguson was a test pilot for the plane, and he recounts the situation at the time. We had a, a tough time with our SA-2s and SA-3s, and we knew that they were developing much more sophisticated uh, missiles. We knew that just conventional airplanes were not going to be able to survive in a high-dense, coordinated missile defense system. And unfortunately, that fact was proven. In 1973, the Yom Kippur War again highlighted the vulnerability of aircraft to Soviet-made SAMs. 
The Israeli Air Force lost 109 aircraft in just 18 days. Where was this fought? So the Yom Kippur War is better known as the Arab-Israeli War. Do you remember the other day when we were doing this podcast and I was like, it's a cold war? Yeah. But really only for us. You remember that? I it's, mean, this is yeah. It's basically the two sides were fighting in other territories, it so proxy. it wasn't head to head. Yeah, it was exactly. all proxy war. Yeah, it's and, almost like having your big brother go beat up the guy that picked on you in school, or it's or, our or little brother even. Well, I was gonna say our stupid analogy the other day, where you move in across the street. It's yeah. like we're not fighting directly at each other, but we go to the neighboring baseball field, and there we go. Yeah, just I don't go know, spread pamphlets stuff about out. how yeah, the exactly. guy that lives across the street is bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> so furthermore, the Soviet Union had been developing an integrated defense network in which SAMs and AAA would be set up around key locations to defend them from an incoming enemy aircraft. Now, the Israelis, that sounds like they got decimated. They did get decimated. That is 109 aircraft Ooh. in just 18 days. If the loss ratio of Israeli during the Yom Kippur War was experienced by NATO forces during any sort of military confrontation with the Warsaw Pact, NATO aircraft numbers would be depleted within two weeks. Uh. So if that same loss ratio hit, it would be basically wipe out every single NATO aircraft in two weeks. So the Russians were feeling really proud of themselves. They're exactly. Like, we don't need to do anything. No, look this at this. We are so good with our missiles the and iron taking down. is impenetrable. Right. And so in 1974, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, a.k.a. DARPA, set forth a new black project, an ultra-secret program of which only a few select people in the Pentagon even knew existed. Which, fun fact... Black projects in the U.S. government are officially known as special access programs, or SAPs. And due to their secrecy, Isn't all... is SAP what it says on the bottom of your television when you're it's available in SAP? Available in SAP? Yeah, because you can hit the channel button and it plays in Spanish. That's what SAP is. Oh, oh really? I did not know <laughs> yeah. that. No, I, I did not know that. No, but due to their secrecy, these special not access the same, programs... Not the same thing. Not at all the same thing. Due to the secrecy, all special access programs are funded by a special government budget that is allocated for classified or other secret operations of a nation. The Black Budget. The Black Budget has been estimated to make up nearly 10% of the American defense budget, which would be over $50 billion a year that's just... It's a black box. Do they just? We don't know where it's where going. Where does the money like kind of come from? Do they just? Is it kind of the thing where they sell the golden toilet? Is because it, it's I always do, the joke right. of or so, like the five hundred dollar pencil. Exactly. I think that is a lot of how they do it because they just they like basically said tricks. we have to basically estimate how big this is because it's impossible to calculate. Right. But it's basically $50 billion a year is an estimate of how much money just goes into secret projects like this. So it's what made the Skunk Works the perfect contractor to work on this black project. Alan Brown was the senior project engineer and explains the mindset at Skunk Works. Well, there's always sort of a wartime environment at the Skunk Works, which goes back to the U-2 operations and the SR operations. We're always doing things in a clandestine sense, and we're always sort of, quote, at war when the rest of the services and the rest of the country is not. Besides the jazz trumpet yeah, there, man, I'm into it. Man. I'm <laughs> I chill. do love that mindset of like, okay, you know how serious and buttoned down the country is and the government is when you're at war faced with an imminent threat. Mm -hmm. That is how Skunk Works is going to operate around the clock all the time. Exactly. Even today, right now, we're at war. 
which truly, if you think about it, we're always on the precipice of exactly. war. Exactly. There's like. always threat. But I just like that that is their official, basically, mantra. Uh, and in 1974, DARPA issued Lockheed Skunk Works a contract to build and test two stealth strike fighters under the code name Have Blue. Have Blue was basically the test bed for stealth technology and is the direct predecessor to the F-117A Nighthawk. They used the existing jet engines for the Northrop T-38A, the fly-by-wire system of the F-16, the landing gear of an A-10, and the environmental systems of a C-130. Kelly Johnson had a famous motto that every new design should be limited to one miracle each. That is to say, use proven design where you can and don't try to bake in too many untested technologies in a single aircraft. And by using these existing components, Lockheed built two demonstrators under budget at $35 million for both aircraft and in record time. One thing that I really thought was curious about at the time was was there any significance to the name Have Blue? Right. It's just very strange. It's a very it strange is. name. So for this, I went into some deep research of military nomenclature. Before Chris. you do, before you get into the deep nomenclature, I just want everybody to know that this program got approved before. I. It's it's pretty wild. Like it's supposed to. The the the, the term is fly it before you buy it. Right. Is what Ben Rich said it was. Fly it before you buy it. They didn't do that with this. No. They wanted this thing. They had the government on the hook. And here's the deal. When this plane was being designed, uh, Lockheed wasn't even in consideration for the contract. That's right. They actually went to four different uh, contractors for two different programs. One program was basically to research the feasibility of making right. a radar uh, invisible plane. Right. And when a couple people said, okay, yes, we can maybe do that. And that's where that, uh, researcher from, uh, Russia came yeah. in. Yeah. When Dennis found the research. Exactly. Yeah. Then the second contract that DARPA set out was, okay, let's build it. And it's interesting because of the four contractors, Lockheed was not one. And it was, I think Grumman said, okay, we're going to do it all electronically. Basically yep. the black box yep. that Lockheed was kind of secretly, secretly saying, oh, that's how it works. Yep. That's actually how Grumman was trying to make it ha happen. And the other two contractors, I think at one point just basically said, we can't do it. We can't do it. Now, what Ben Rich would do is he walked into the defense department. He had a, uh, like a little metal ball bearing and he rolled it across the table at the guy across the desk from him and said, do you want the radar signature of plane to be this big or do you want it to be the size of a Greyhound bus? Because that's what it was at the time. Yeah. All contemporary aircraft showed up on radar as if it was a Greyhound bus. Just enormous. And here he is saying, we can do this. Yep. So it turns out, back to our nomenclature and where the name Have Blue comes from. I was just curious. It's so strange. Why is that the thing? Well, it turns out there's an entire structure to military code names, Chris. And while many projects feature top secret classification, the names of the project themselves are always unclassified and usually consist of two separate words. The first word must start with two letters selected from a range of alphabetical blocks that are assigned to different agencies by the joint staff. Often, specific first words. I thought it was from just those, named after somebody's dog or something. That I, is not the case. Oh. No, it it it's interesting. Here, hold up. Bear with me. Okay. Often, specific first words from those alphabetical blocks are reserved for specific types of users, projects, or operations. H 
A, it turns out, is part of a block assigned to the Air Force. HAVE is specifically assigned to the U.S. Air Force Systems Command. So, in that sense, the names aren't exactly random, but there are additional criteria that state a name cannot have anything to do with the project itself. Basically, you wouldn't want to call a stealth program, like, Sneaky giant <laughs> or something, right? Because obviously you would be able to discern what it is. Right. So while the name Have Blue doesn't have some secret association or meeting or isn't the name of the designer's dog, it is interesting nonetheless. And when preliminary work on Project Have Blue started, there were many different design theories on what shape the aircraft should take. Designer Dick Scherer was introduced to Denny Overholzer, who was familiar with the previous work of our Soviet mathematician, Pieter. Overholzer later recounted his discussion with the designer. Quote, when Dick asked me, I said, well, it's simple. You just make it out of flat surfaces and tilt those flat surfaces over, sweeping the edges away from the radar view angle. And that way you basically cause enough energy to reflect away from the radar. Scherer subsequently drew a preliminary low RCS aircraft with faceted surfaces. So if you think about it, when you shoot a radar at something, you're basically shooting a beam up. I don't often shoot a radar. Well, when when when, <laughs> well, when radar dude shoots a what is it, a radarologist? What is he called? He's a radar guy. I'm sure there's a term that some military well, guys like. Well, yeah, if we're a, watching MASH, then his name is just Radar. Radar is shooting the beam up. It comes up and it bounces straight back. But if you have, if everything is a faceted angle, it's going to bounce away from right, whatever angle it is. So that's what they're the trying source. to do. Exactly. And many within the division were skeptical of the shape, giving rise to the name the Hopeless Diamond. Kelly Johnson himself was outspokenly skeptical of the design and said to Rich, Quote, our old D-21 drone has a lower radar cross-section than that goddamn diamond. However, upon scale model tests, the design proved itself, having a minute radar signature. Kelly Johnson supposedly paid the designer a quarter, the earnings of a bet that he was right about the effectiveness of the design. I always thought it would be cool to have that quarter. Um like if you and I were going to make a bet back and forth, we would always just bet just 25 cents. Just have that quarter. Just that quarter. You yep. can earn that quarter back. I like that. So construction of two full-scale half-blue prototypes was scheduled to be completed on August 1977. However, on September 1st, Lockheed Machinists went on a four-month strike. Not a company to let petty labor squabbles get in the way of production, Lockheed swiftly fired all the striking machinists, and instead, a team of managers traded in their suits for overalls and completed the assembly themselves, which I think is just freaking amazing. Yeah. You would never see that happen today, but these guys were so invested in the project. Can you imagine middle managers saying, all right, screw it. We'll go build the damn things ourselves. I love it. While the half blue is visually similar to later F-117 Nighthawk that we all know, the half blue prototypes were smaller weighing in at only a quarter of what the F-117 later did. Did you know that it was it's $1,000 a pound on a plane? You told me that. So yeah. that's kind of just like the general, Ge general rule, of, rule thumb. of thumb. It's $1,000 a pound for the plane. And then for all the really good stuff, it's 4000 like the avionics and the yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's, that's the prime cut. The prime that's, cut is $4,000 a pound. That's, that's how much that shit costs. Nuts. So when you have a plane that's you know weighs 25% of the other one, it's a hell of a lot cheaper. Yes. Um, 
Do you know how to discern the prototype have blue, the predecessor from the F117? It's 25% as big. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> no, one of the major visual differences between the designs is the tail. So while the final F117 features twin outwardly canted vertical tails, the earlier half blues design were actually tilted inward toward each other at the top. And this was basically to get to the diamond shape that they said was right. the optimal shape. Yeah, they're well, just at trying the to time, keep everything within they that. just took a diamond and cut out everything else. No, we'll just put the tails like this. The final shape they did make work, though, with outwardly canted V-shaped tail. You know, I've always wondered, when you look at the shape of this plane, you look at the facets that are on it, and then you look at modern stealth planes, and they're actually quite round. The, it's very strange, <laughs> the reason. I know. These, I always thought, well, what? why aren't, why don't modern planes all look like faceted like that? Because our computers are awesome. Yes. <laughs> Their computers were so bad. Well, and, okay, bad. In context. Was, yes, in context. They were so uh, just slow, and they just couldn't handle the, the computing power, that that is the most complex shape that they could make with the computers that they had at yes. the time. Yes, they basically had a formula they created that showed, okay, we can compute the perfect angles of a surface in order to make it as small as possible to radar cross-section. Problem is, it's to being compute done by a computer this, that takes up an entire room. Yes, yeah, so they just made the most simple shape they could, which was a giant diamond, and then just started cutting pieces out of it because right. they knew that would work. Okay, so because stealth took precedence above all else, the aircraft was inherently extremely unstable. As a result, a quadruple redundant fly-by-wire system was integrated into the aircraft to give it normal fly-by-wire means characteristics. it's electronic. Right, when yes. you move the stick, a signal goes to a to a servo that moves the flap. It's exactly. not hydraulics or a cable like everybody else was used to. Think of it as an an automotive analog is basically instead of having a throttle cable connected directly to your gas pedal, yeah. you have a little sensor that then travels through wires to the ECU, and then that signal tells the throttle plate how right. far to open. Yep. Same thing so on. Not too many guys flew this plane. And what's the? Did you look up the nickname for this plane? It's the the Wobbling Goblin. Both pilots that you're going to hear from in our interview today, in our interview next week, both said bullshit. It's a beautiful plane to fly. Yes. So that's you it's know, because have, they basically were able to build in and engineer the flight characteristics because it's fly by wire. Right. So the two demonstrator aircrafts first flew on December first, nineteen seventy seven. The full scale testing proved the concepts and proved a wealth of data. However. Both aircraft were unfortunately lost during testing. The pilot, Bill Parks, was able to eject before the first plane went down, and after months of analyzing the cause of the crash, they launched the second prototype into testing. The airplane was uh, conducting a routine stealth flight where it flies past the radar systems on the base, and Ken noticed that he was losing he was losing control, and we got a fire indication back at one of the exhausts. I realized things were bad, and I did start talking to the home plate and let them know that things weren't going well, and that about that time, the airplane went totally, uh, totally out of control. And he had a very hard time even to be able to reach the control to be able to eject himself, but he finally did that. The airplane tumbled, much like the way Bill Parks' airplane had tumbled after he ejected. And it was going straight down, not in a spin, just in a flopping maneuver. 
the half blue airplane hit the ground, it burned pretty good. What? Okay. <laughs> it burned pretty good. I bet it did. So, what kind of G forces does it take that you can't can't your, reach your hand out? You can't take your, your hands legs. out to grab the oak. Like what? What kind of? I have no idea. That's amazing, though. It's ridiculous. And what's interesting? Did you know how he said it didn't like go into a dive? It just kind of flopped on its way down. Yeah. That's because when you lose all control of it, it just goes to show how aerodynamically un like efficient it was. Right. It was unstable. It's basically like a rock. You throw a rock, it's not going to point itself down and glide. Right. It just falls from the sky. And that's what this thing did. So both of the half blue test planes were destroyed during testing. And I did look into why this happened. Apparently someone forgot to tighten a hose clamp on some sort of exhaust re-bypass system. And what that did is overheat the hydraulic fluid and basically just made the controls There's, go dead. These are all human errors. There was another story about another plane that uh, that Skunk Works was building where someone left a vacuum cleaner in the gas tank. <laughs> Seriously, they left a vacuum cleaner in the gas tank. The guy goes up to fly and probably was like, hmm, what the hell is that? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of clunking of going on. Vacuum cleaner in the gas tank. Wow. Eventually, they had to come up with some sort of inventory system. As the, as the Not stuff only that, that, because these these guys would also, the mechanics would be climbing through you know the jet nozzles and everything else, and like pens would fall out of their shirt. Yeah, so they made jumpsuits that didn't have any pockets so these guys <laughs> so these guys couldn't take like the pocket protector with them exactly so just because the planes were destroyed during testing doesn't mean the program was a failure it's quite the so opposite actually the program fulfilled its mission its mission showed that these things did work it's proof of concept exactly we can make this plane the size of a marble Yes, and the success of Have Blue led the government to fully invest funding in stealth technology under the program of the F-117A. And as you mentioned before, this was basically the first instance where the business blue suits, as they called them, yep. they went against their own rule of fly it before you buy it. They, want, they needed it that bad. Exactly. They really needed the thing. And the first F-117As were delivered in but 1982. Look at it this way. They're thinking about that Yom Kippur war going, we oh, my need God. Something oh, my now. God. Oh, my God. Exactly. The only air combat command's unit to fly the F-17 was the 4,450th Tactical Group, achieving operational capability that following year. Now, although commonly called a stealth fighter, it's actually a misnomer, Chris. The aircraft did not have the ability to engage other aircraft and was therefore strictly an attack plane or light bomber. This was definitely an attack airplane. And of course, the question then is, why is it called an F-117 when F stands for fighter? And again, we've got to go back to uh, Bob Dixon, who was head of tech. And he was going to use his very best fighter pilots on this program because it represented the top point of the Air Force. Well, no fighter pilot worth his salt is going to fly an airplane with a B designation in front of it. And maybe not an A designation, which means attack. So they called it an F. To make the fighter pilots feel like they're flying fighters. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight that a little bit. Okay. And you'll hear when we talk, I'm going to rehash a little <laughs> bit of the interview that I have. These guys didn't have a clue what they were going to be flying. Oh, really? There was, they didn't, you are going to be doing something special for your country. That's huh. the entirety of what I was told that they knew. Wow. They didn't know what they were going to be flying. They didn't know where they were going. They didn't know when. It was, pack your bags. We're going. You're going to be doing something for your country. Yeah. And they were picked based on their 
their psychological ability to handle some the situations wow. that this plane would be in is the kind of the qual. Obviously, if you're a fire pilot, you're already the cream of the crop of pilots, right? right. There's not that many fire pilots, <laughs> and then they pick <laughs> yeah. the ones that they think can handle. There's not many D-list fighter pilots. <laughs> no, no, there, no, there isn't. No, there isn't. So these guys didn't really know. Yeah, and interesting. I think you go there, and then all of a sudden they show it to you. What are you going to say? No, look at the thing, <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't know. Fighter just... or not, the F one one seven was visually amazing and striking, just like its Skunkworks predecessors. The F one one seven was painted black, but while the SR seventy one's color was needed for heat dissipation, like we mentioned last week, the F one one seven had a completely different rationale. I remember being in my office on the F one seventeen. And Bob Dixon, who was the four-star head of tactical Air Force, who was talking about the color scheme. And he said, this airplane is going to fly at night, Brown, isn't it? I said, yes, sir, it's fine at night. He says, well, paint the damn thing black. So we painted the damn thing black. Well, I like that reason a lot better than, well, it's got some thermal efficiency. No, it's, it's gonna, just not going to melt. Paint the goddamn paint thing black. black. Paint it black. It's going to look really good on the pamphlets that we drop over Baghdad <laughs> that say give up now. Exactly. Which we actually did. I, did you know that? We dropped Yes. And pamphlets? it shows an image of the Nighthawk on it. Yeah. Dr basically dropping bombs on people. And on the other side, it's like, it's too Save late. yourself. Save yourself. Give up. Yeah. Just I'd have nuts. it translated by one of my uh, one of our Iranian listeners. Oh, really? Cash. I'm like, hey, do you know how to read this? He's like, well, I don't really do Farsi, but I think it says this. It's oh, basically cool. says run. Wow. And as they we call here, they called it the Black Death. Wow. The Iraqis did. They called the plane the well, Black Death. Well, yeah, you can't see it coming, and it brings death. It sure does. And as we'll hear in next week's interview, it was the only coalition jet allowed to strike targets inside Baghdad city limits. It was one of the most defensed. Uh, or air defense cities in the world. Yeah, at he, the time. he. You ever see those old clips from like uh, the Gulf War when it's just green you, and night vision? Yes. And it's just tracer fire everywhere. Everywhere. Anti aircraft, yeah. everything. And so that is basically why they said, well, we need something that has a chance of getting through. And nothing this else was would. the only thing that they let go through. Now, Chris, officially, the Air Force inventory of 58 Nighthawks was retired in 2008 put away in a flyable storage condition. However, I wish in, they could put me away in a flyable storage. In a storage flyable storage? Would that be like cryogenically freezing me so I can be flyable later? Or just constantly maintained. Like, you know what it yeah. is? Your 911 is in flyable storage over winter. Well, it not, is, not right yes. now because there's an engine missing. Well, no, it's still fly. We could put the motor back in. Okay. Yeah. Well, Sounds good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, regardless, an unknown number, though, are still flying. They've been spotted. With regular sightings. Much of the F-17's accomplishments and, indeed, its current role are still classified. But let's take a moment to talk about Oberk Car Care. Oberk Car Care is your source for professional detailing compounds and supplies that's research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are passionate about detailing and know firsthand what it takes to make a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it. It's a simple, foolproof, two-step process. It's easy and gives amazing results. Right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on OBERCCARCARE.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Check them out today. All right, guys, I really enjoyed this interview. Jet Crouch was, I don't think he's ever, I couldn't find anything on the guy. Usually you type somebody into Google, like, oh yeah, this guy's done this, he's done that. This dude, a little under the radar. Which is fitting. Which is, yeah. <laughs> 
didn't even do that on purpose. <laughs> uh, it, it's a great interview. It's one of the, one of my favorites I've ever done. Uh, Jet Crouch, everybody. Hello, Mr. Crouch. This is Chris from the Overcrest Podcast. Hey, Chris. All right, let me put you on speaker and see if you get a good, clear reception. Okay. Sure, we'll try it. All right. Yeah, you read me. Yeah, actually, that sounds pretty good. I'm 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 surprised. I was about to be like, nope, nope, that's not going to work, but. Yeah, if it's not good, let me know. We'll go back to where I take it off speaker. No, it's fine. That's that sounds just fine to me. Excellent. So I I was talking to Buzz Carpenter, and he said that you were the guy to talk to. He says he was gonna. He's like, let me let me find let me find you some guys to talk to. And then I mentioned to you that I I talked to another pilot, and you're like, hey, I'm one of the original cadre, which led me the dictionary to look up what cadre meant. <laughs> <laughs> but what what does that mean when you say you're one of the original cadre for the for the Nighthawk? Well, the way it started was uh, unbeknownst to me, it started back in the, the 80s. And uh, General Creech at the time was the commander of Tactical Air Command, which is now changed to Air Combat Command. But General Creech was one of our, our favorite generals. He led an excellent capability as far as the Tactical Air Command. And it was he, uh, after just going through a lot of records, unbeknownst to our initial cadre, of uh, picking the first 10 operational pilots to fly the airplane. In other words, they had some test pilots from Lockheed right. that worked at the Skunk Works, and, but they needed pilots to get the airplane operational. And so as a result, uh, they went through the records and uh, I was chosen. Now, the way that occurred Whereas it was a gentleman who was a great commander named Bob Jackson. And you had to know this gentleman because I first came in contact with him back in 1977 when I was flying F-4 Phantoms out of Kunsan, Korea. He was the commander of the 35th Fighter Squadron. Sure. And I worked with him there, and I actually worked a little bit of safety in the squadron at that time. And the background on Bob Jackson was he was a Thunderbird, blew the F-4. Uh, he was a U.S. Air Force test pilot. So this gentleman had an absolutely astounding uh, resume and record. And once you worked for him during that one year, you kind of got to know how he was. He was kind of a no-nonsense type of gentleman, but had a great sense of humor at the same time. So here I am in 1980. I just returned from uh, F-4 Fighter Weapons School out at Nellis, which is the Air Force version basically of Top Gun. And uh, I got a call from Bob Jackson, and he said he needed to come see me. And he was working at headquarters Langley there at headquarters Tactical Air Command. And I didn't think much of it. I thought he was just going to do a question and answer period on fighter weapons school. Uh, so to come to find out, uh, there was another friend of mine who was also called. We didn't know it at the time. But he showed up, and we just happened to be sitting air defense alert, or I was. Uh, we were sitting at that time 24 hours, seven days a week against Cuba uh, on the 24th, plus the Russian bears that would come down from Iceland on the way to Cuba. And we'd get a chance to go out and intercept them, et cetera, et cetera. But we were out in the alert facility and he showed up and I was the first to go into the into the meeting. And he said, hey, Jed, it's great to see you again. I haven't got time to sign this piece of paper. It was basically a non-disclosure statement stating that he was never there. Uh, we couldn't, I couldn't discuss with him what this was about. And he says, I'm here to offer you a job. It'll be about a year. You'll be living here in about a year, year and a half. I can't tell you what it is, but it's got one of the highest, if not the highest national defense priority. And of course and your ears perked up and then the message self-destructed, right? 
Well, just being a fighter pilot, you're going, well, I can't. And then knowing Bob Jackson, I knew that the time constraint was here because if you hiccuped and hesitated, you weren't going to get chosen. Right. And so immediately being that, I said, I'm in. <laughs> so so uh, my fellow uh, pilot, we, we'd flown F-4s together in Kadena and Okinawa as well as in Korea. And he was the next to go in. And I'm sitting there looking at my clock or my watch when he walked in and right at about two minutes out, he comes because he had worked with Bob Jackson, same time I had in Korea. And then we had a third guy that went in and we we're both sitting there looking at our watches and two minutes goes by and then five minutes goes by. And we looked at each other and said, eh, he ain't in. <laughs> <laughs> and so to find out he's not in, <laughs> but, he was, but he was a great guy. He was a good friend of ours and he went on to great things in the air force, but that's how I got hired. Now come to find out, uh, General Creech had scoured all the records that uh, was given by the personnel attack, and they were basically amounted to basically all fighter weapons school graduates, highly experienced pilots. Uh, uh, and so General Creech made the final decision on who he wanted. Bob, that's why he was there to offer me the job. So I go home that night after being this offered this job. You, you still don't know what you're about. doing at this point, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's still just a mystery. I have no clue what I'm doing. So I'm just going on how I know Bob Jackson's resume is. So uh, the funny part is at that time, I was kind of uh, uh, in the running for the uh, Thunderbirds. So uh, I told him, I said, uh, is there anything I need to know about? And I said, yeah, I'm in the running for the Thunderbirds. He said, okay, I'll take care of that. Well, remember, he was an ex-Thunderbird. So about a week later, I get a call from Norm Lowry, bless his heart, he was it was the team that went in the dirt there back in the eighties, the diamond that went in uh, the line of breast loop. But Norm Lowry called me and said, jet, uh, this Colonel just walked in and pulled your papers. And I said, was it Bob Jackson? He goes, yes. I said, okay, don't worry about it. <laughs> so I still didn't know what I was doing. So back the, after the day he interviews me, what kind I of time frame are we talking here? Are you kind of twiddling your thumbs for a week or is this all happening real fast? No, this is happening pretty quick. Uh, the interview happens. I go home that night, tell the wife, hey, we're going to, we're living at, by the way, we're at Homestead Air Force Base, which was blown away after at, uh, after Hurricane Andrews. But we were down there, and uh, I go home that night and tell the wife, I said, well, I think we're leaving here in about a year, year and a half. And she said, well, where are we going? I said, I don't know. He just said, we're going to come out the Southwest United States. And what'd she say? Uh, she said, okay. So, uh, so my other buddy of mine, which is a funny side story to this is, uh, we had been there approaching the three year point. Now, before Bob Jackson left, he says, if you get a hold of me, here's a telephone number where you can reach me. Well, the direct, or the, uh, um, one of the wing commanders that I'd worked for in Kunsan at the time, he became an F-15 wing commander out of Holloman. So, he calls down and offers me the job to go fly F-15s. Now, I kind of hemmed and hawed and hawed and hemmed and sort of just kind of delayed tactics as much as I could. So he didn't really pursue it too much more. And then our director of operations at Homestead went on to be a wing commander uh, out at Hill Air Force Base, starting out with F-16s. Sure. And he offered me a job, and, and as well as my other buddy, and we kind of hemmed and hawed and turned it down. So we finally... So you're turning down all these great gigs for the mystery plan, basically. Yeah, exactly. And what you have to understand is, is that during this period, there were a lot of pilots in the Air Force getting out going to the airlines. Mm -hmm. So so all of a sudden, both my buddy and I, who had a great reputation, and myself, we're getting looked at here at the wing, which was the 31st 
uh, tactical fighter wing at the time in Homestead. They're all of a sudden thinking we're gonna get going to the airlines and getting out of the air force. So, Are they kind of like they're? We had a huge buildup of pilots and stuff, I suppose, for the Vietnam War, and now that that's over with, everybody kind of doesn't have anything to do, so they're going to fly, you know, you know, commercial airliners. Right? Is that kind of what's yeah, going on? Yeah. yeah, and the airlines, you know, they're making money now. If you want to make money, the air force is not where to be. But right. I love the life. I love the lifestyle of the fighter pilot, and the, the the camaraderie, and the organizational structure. So it was my life, but. Make a long story short, um, we finally got called up to the uh, director of operations uh, office. And before I did that, I filled that little phone number out and called Bob Jackson and said, here's what's going on. They think that we are getting out of the Air Force. <laughs> so we went back up to the wing headquarters and told him that the guy says, why didn't you tell me you knew Bob Jackson? We couldn't find the deal at the time. Kind of knew that Bob was into something a little bit black world, so to speak. Right. So we were kind of left alone at that point. And sure enough, we show up. I ended up showing up out there around December 1980 at uh, Nellis Air Force Base. And uh, the family came out. At that time, I had a six-month-old and a two-year-old. And uh, to me, the real unsung heroes of this initial cadre, um, and I hope I answered your question about the cadre, but yeah. the first 10 pilots, so we all kind of show up at the same time out there. And the real unsung heroes of this whole operation in this black world we were living in was the families because the, the wives, the families, they were never briefed in on what we were doing. So as a result, I spent four and a half years doing this as most of the other initial cadre guys did. And the families just never were told. We were told that uh, because we're here, we are in the 1981-82, the Cold War still raging. Yep. Reagan is now. And we knew that there, because of Nellis, where it was, we knew there were Russian agents around. We were briefed on that and said the, uh, we, they were told we would have our home phone numbers tapped. So we were able to tell the wives that, et cetera. And we just told them to be on the lookout for anything suspicious. If you see anybody asking a lot of questions, especially about why you're here at Nellis, even though they didn't know what we were doing. How did that meantime, affect the dynamic with your bride? I mean, was it, was she, did she just say accept it or was it tough at times? No, uh, on the face value, uh, she accepted wholeheartedly. She was the the perfect fighter pilot wife. She understood that, as we put it in that business, my first love was my jet, and the second love was the wife. You know, so uh, she understood the. Uh, and what's what's interesting about this? I'd already just been remote for a whole year, and now this ended up being basically a four and a half year remote tour, because what we would do, and as this program evolved. We'd get on an airplane, go up to Tonopah Test Range. Uh, eventually, we'd come in Key Airlines and 727s. We'd go up on a Monday, and we'd come home Friday morning. And so that whole week, they were by themselves. And here's my wife with a, with a uh, you know, like I said, a two-month and a six, six-year-old. Right. I mean, a two-year-old and a six-month-old baby. So anyway, uh, she took it like, you know, I trust you, basically. And it's my business. She understands that. You know, when you're in the Air Force or the military, you know, you're on call 24-7. So uh, she took it like it, like you expect. But I know she went through some hard times. I'm sure. From fact, being being gone that way. But we also told them there was a phone number we gave them to put on the refrigerator. And I would tell her to exercise that. And if you needed to get in hold of us, any of the family needed to get a hold, call that number. And basically, we would be told and we'd get back to them within 10 or 15, 20 minutes if we weren't flying. Were all the wives pretty close? Did they kind of all know who the other wives were in the program, or was it just her? 
No, it's very, all were very close. It's like okay. anything. It's kind of like a squadron. We were called the 4450th Tech Group, Tactical Group, and uh, they were close. It was like a squadron, and the sure. Air Force was very tight. And uh, so they were all all there. It was funny as the years went on. You know, after the first year, second year, uh, we'd all get together for parties, etc., on Saturday nights, and they would try to come up with some stories to try to figure out what we were doing, and they compare notes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I bet they were. I mean, I, that's yeah. what I would do. I'd be yeah. all over that. So yeah, you're flying to Tonopah, which is basically it's when it, when you say that it's kind of like Area 51 is over there. It's Tonopah uh, Valley Desert, whatever you want to call it, is the size of Switzerland. It's really big, right? Yeah, the whole Nellis Range Complex is big. Uh, then Tonopah Test Range, which we uh, called the TTR, we call it the Remote Desert Location. We called it PS66. Uh, it was up in the northwest part near the town of Tonopah. And if you go a little uh, north and east of it, you'll find where the base was located. The base up there uh, was actually uh, two parts to the base, and they were 10 miles apart. Uh, one was what we called the man camp, and that's where we basically had uh, cafeterias. We had a swimming pool, tennis courts. But however, when we first started, it was kind of bare bones. We did have cafeteria, excellent food. And but our boss, uh, Colonel Jackson, had located a Wyoming mining camp, so to speak. And they moved it down there. So we each had our own little rooms initially until the construction was complete, where we each had our own nice big uh, rooms by ourselves. We were by ourselves in man camp as well, as far as the mining camp goes. Sure. But, uh, it was a it was real good camaraderie, uh, but the wives were very close, and they knew that uh, they could count on us. And in other words, when somebody was down there, we kind of let them know we were down there. Now, because we were flying A sevens when I first got there, we were doing it for two reasons. One was one to keep our pilot from fishing up because we didn't have an F one seventeen to fly at that time in nineteen eighty one. So we were flying A sevens, and the other reason we were doing it uh, from a proficiency standpoint. Was it, it was going to be our cover story of why we were actually at Nellis. Right. Yeah. Cause and, they, you guys would just park the A7s all out there. And then the, obviously the Nighthawk would be in the, in the hangars and you'd bring them out at night. But it seems like, from what I could tell, the Russians kind of figured it out because you guys had extra cameras, double fencing, all this security. So they must have known something was going on there, but not really exactly what was going on. Yeah. We would, uh, we would play the Russians through the satellites. We knew when the satellites were coming over and, uh, now, we had two compounds. The Nellis, we had a complete building down at Nellis where we, hired, where we housed most of our A7s. And we usually kept two A7s, what we called uprange at TTR. And you would fly those at night if you weren't scheduled to fly the F-117. And But we knew when the Russians were coming over and we'd get the airplanes in the hangars, et cetera. Now, Did you ever write fun- anything out on the runway like, Ola, hello, comrade, or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we did put something on the top of the building, and uh, I can't I can't repeat that here. But uh, <laughs> hey, this but, is there's no FCC here. You can all you can be free. <laughs> and we let the Russians know what we thought of them. So that's awesome. But, but the uh, uh, typically when we finally got up there, but I was going to tell you about another personal note about this. Yeah, there was a lot of civilians that were doing the construction up at TTR, building the, the hangars. We built like 52 hangars up there that were all environmentally controlled because the 117 needed that, you know, because it had the RAM coding and things of that nature. And so as a result, uh, my first trip up range 
uh, I'm standing in line to get some lunch and I look over and my buddy sitting next to me. I said, man, that looks like my dad. And so sure enough, it was my dad. And uh, he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> and you got to remember, this whole area was a highly classified area. Right, right. And so he couldn't tell me what he was doing, even though I knew what he was doing. He was a project manager for building the place. And then uh, I was up there, going to be flying, et cetera. So we got there. Now, our charter was initially Bob Jackson assigned everybody the initial cadre to go do something because I had a little bit of background in safety. I was told to go get safety school on me. And and so to show you how, how much decentralized management Bob did, he said, look, Here's the TAC DO, you have a problem calling. Now, that's the two buttons sitting up at TAC at Langley. We're out here in Tonopah. So I called at the time it was Norton Air Force Base in San Bernardino. And I said, I need to get into your next class for safety. And here I am, a captain. And I'm talking to a full colonel. I'm going, this is going to go over great. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't get you in, da 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 da. And I said, well, I really need to get into this class. He said, well, who are you and what group you're from? And da 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 da. da. And so I had to call the uh, TAC. Attack uh, DO general, and I got a phone call about a day later saying, Hey, you're in the next class. <laughs> so that's how much priority it had. And then we started doing our ground training, starting getting ready to learn to fly the airplane. Hold on a second. And- I just want to, before we get into learning how to fly the airplane, I want to rewind back to, you know, your first experience seeing it. You know, what, when you finally well, found out what you were going to be doing. Well, when I first showed up in Nellis, there was a building that's uh, a little bit north of the actual runways up there. There's no windows. I go up there and I, I get interviewed by the Office of Special Investigation or OSI, Air Force OSI. And they want to know what I, what, they wanted to know what did I think I was doing there? And I said, I have no idea. Okay. And he said, you hadn't heard anything? I said, no. So then I walked into the next room. There was Bob Jackson and then his, his, uh, his at that time, his ops officer. They showed me this picture of this airplane. And I thought for sure we had captured an alien airplane. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, well, maybe it is real. I mean, because if you look at the airplane head on, it's a very awe-inspiring airplane head on. Yep. And, of course, that's what they showed you, this thing head on. I thought, man, we've, we've got some kind of alien craft here. And, of course, they served, They said, no, this is going to be our – you're going to be flying the first low observable aircraft. And uh, so I was amazed at what it looked like. Uh, and, of course, it hadn't flown it yet. So my first initial reaction was exactly that. We've, we've captured an alien aircraft. <laughs> it does look completely different than oh, anything really else that existed at the time. Oh, yeah, especially head-on and all the angles to the airplane. It just looks something like, you know, out of the world, so to speak. So was it worth the wait, all the waiting and all the screwing around? And Well, know? yeah, because we knew that, uh, we knew that this airplane uh, and this project was paramount. They were telling us pretty much the Manhattan Project. And so, uh, and you know, I want to just emphasize that because when we think of advancements in terms of technology and what it's going to do in terms of, of war, you know, the Manhattan project obviously ended world war two, as we know Mm -hmm. it, this project, the stealth F one one seven project ended the cold war as we know it. Technically, we we think it did because what it did, uh, it kind of shut down their integrated air defense systems with radar. Yeah, they had so nothing. We had, we had a machine that could penetrate uh, basically their air defenses and get in to do things. And so it, I will say it, it heavily contributed to ending the Cold War. And so uh, we knew it had a lot of high priorities. So 
but the airplane itself, designed by Lockheed, we went to Lockheed, we went to the Skunk Works. At this time, it was at Burbank Airport. And uh, as a matter of fact, it's kind of many years later, I'm a captain with Federal Express flying out of Burbank. And now where the Skunk Works used to be was where they had the trailers for movie sets where they'll take the trailers, let the actors stay in them and things like that. But we would, uh, they would build the airplanes at the Skunk Works there in Burbank, area, California. And they'd load them on a C-5, and then they'd fly them up to TTR and put them together. And uh, so that's how we got the airplanes up to the Tonopah test range. And they'd put them together in the hangars, et cetera. And going to the Burbank Skunk Works the first time, now you got you to understand that we were told everything, every decision made has to do with classification and secret. And so... We're thinking, okay, we've got to keep our mouth shut, et cetera, et cetera, to the point of where when we go to town, i.e. down to Burbank, to get our ground training, uh, we couldn't stay in the same hotel twice in a row unless it was over a six-month or six-week period. So, and we had to wear civilian clothes, and uh, so we weren't, you know, looking like military. So when I first walked into the Skunk Works and I sat down at the factory, I see all these thousands of workers in there and I'm thinking to myself, and you're worried about me. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, it, you just think but, there's oh, thousands of people. Well, my point is, is that at that point I realized that you don't have to be in the military to be a patriot and a citizen of this country because they play just as much a part in keeping this airplane a secret and what it needed to do. But they had some history there with the SR-71 and things of that nature with Kelly Johnson. And the guy that was the real father of this thing was Ben Rich at the time, right. where I got to meet a couple times. And so uh, it was it was an awe-inspiring operation. Now, <laughs> talking about the ground school for us initial cadres, we didn't have a simulator at this time because the airplane wasn't that well known. So when I got ready to start to go fly the airplane, we would sit down literally in a room with tile full floor. And the closest thing I can put to you is somebody put a toilet plunger on the floor. And at the top of that toilet plunger was a stick of the airplane. <laughs> and, and, and I'm sitting in a regular chair and there's a guy, there's some wires running out of it. And it's, he's got a computer behind me on a desk and I'm sitting there and he says, okay, this is what it's going to feel like on takeoff. This is what we think it's going to feel like on air refueling. And he said, so there you go. So that was, that was our simulator. <laughs> and so now you understand why they tried to choose some highly experienced pilots. Sure. So, uh, but I have a lot of admiration for those who worked in the skunk works during that period and, and any time. And of course, I think they're up in the high desert now. But Can you tell us not, about meeting Ben Rich? Because there's, well, there's not that many people that really, you know, yeah, have met the guy. Yeah, I didn't get to really know him that personal, but he would come up to TTR and talk to us, and he was just a down-to-earth guy. I mean, you could tell he was prideful, but he wasn't boisterous, if you know what I mean. He, right. He was diff he'd had a different style than Kelly Johnson, for sure. Yes, and uh, he was a product of Kelly Johnson, but he had a different personality. But his personality fit for what the 117 needed, and I, best I could tell is people love working for him, but I... I thought the world of him, but uh, but he was just a down to earth individual, right? But uh, it was it was interesting. So uh, we finally started getting our airplanes in. Uh, it was kind of neat because every time I go fly an F one seventeen, it was like flying a new car, had that new car smell and everything. 
And uh, we get in there and our whole objective now, while we were there, and we're talking about 1980, late 81 timeframe, probably here. Our whole objective now, we're starting to go spend our weeks at a time or week at a time up in the desert there. And because of the secrecy, we had to fly the airplane all at night. Right. And so, uh, matter of fact, we had to get on an airplane. We needed to, we could stay on the Nellis Range complex at night. But we wanted, we needed to get off the range to look at realistic targets. And our idea of realistic targets was finding, building XYZ in the town of Reno type thing. And so we needed to practice to get our, our uh, inertial nav systems and our coordination with Intel, et cetera, to make us let us do that. To do that, we had to go out to back to Langley, Virginia and brief the commander on why we needed to go off range because it was a high value asset. And of course we didn't want to lose one that was off the range. So, well, obviously uh, you're not dropping laser guided bombs in the middle of a desert, right? You're, you're attacking airfields, buildings, stuff like that when it's actually going to be employed as, as intended. So you got to go somewhere with it at some point. Yeah. And you know, we were looking at it possibly of, you know, taking out certain building at some place, you know, the Cobb Valley was getting really hot. So, uh, we needed to do that. So the, the the rulings that came down said we can leave the range complex as long as the moon illuminations are not greater than 10%. And so we would do that when we knew the moon were down. Now, because we're sitting up a little north, the tough times we're trying to fly the airplane was during the summer months because it didn't get real dark until way late. Right. And so typically, if you spent, when we went up there on Mondays, we all got on the airplanes Monday, went up there, and we do one mission. And that was because of sleep cycle. Uh, we knew we'd been up all weekend with the families, et cetera. So our circadian rhythm was going to be out of whack. So we were allowed to fly one mission. And we only do what we call one mission that night. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we would do two missions per night. They were typically each made up of about, once we got a lot of airplanes, we'd be typically six, eight airplanes per mission, if you know what I'm saying. Right. And we would have a mass briefing up there and we went out and had photography done and photos. So we would hand the pilots the photos so they could see what the target's going to be. And of course, everything was being recorded through the airplane. So we would come back and we would look at the time on the targets of each of the targets. And then we'd look at as they hit the target. And that's how we kind of uh, judged how people were doing and how the airplane was doing. So our whole goal was, and we were doing something different here. Typically, when you bring an airplane on for operational capability, it's in the hands of the Air Force Flight Test Center out at Edwards. And so they were kind of involved in a little bit. But at the same time, we wanted to rush this airplane. So the operational guys like myself, we were kind of doing some of the test flying. And to give you an example, if I can recall, uh, when we first got the airplane, we would come across the fence for landing on the approach. We were doing upwards of 170, 165, something like that, which is hauling pretty good. And it's got a big parachute on it when we touched down. So when I left there, I think we were down around 140, 145. The engineers were adjusting the flight control gains. Now, as a side note, I hear a lot about uh, people calling it the wobbling goblin. And I can tell you that the initial cadre in the four and a half years I was at the Tonopah, I never heard it named the Wobbling Goblin. <laughs> yeah, this, it's the other pilot I talked to said the thing fly, flew great. He says that he doesn't know, never experienced yeah. anything like that either. Yeah, the airplane was, to me, it was a very fine flying airplane. Uh, of course, it's like anything you have today. You had to have a flight control computer to fly. 
And that's we had matched that. That's like the F-16, which I flew later on in life in my career. Uh, it's got computerized flight controls. And so it takes that computer to fly it, it as it takes your inputs. But uh, it's like anything in the organization. Uh, uh, the, the job of bringing this airplane to combat capability as quickly as we could was our charter. And we actually got a secret operational readiness inspection. They read some people in, they came out and gave us a, what, what the old guys out there would remember as an operational readiness inspection, ORI. We got that in 1983, and we were actually combat capable. We called it the initial combat capability. And we were actually combat capable in 83, and they released, I think, the pictures of the airplane around 86, 87 timeframe, if I remember correctly. That's a hell of a secret to keep for that long if the thing's actually running missions. Yeah, it was amazing. And uh, but again, it's the people now, the, the the maintenance people, you know, no matter who was part of that team, they all contributed to that airplane. And as a side note, this is another funny story during the end. Of course, it's not classified anymore. But at the time, we we're up there with our F-117s and the Red Hats, the 44th, uh, 77th, uh, are up there flying MiGs. <laughs> okay, so right. we're out there in the daytime. I'm watching them fly MiGs. Of course, most of them I'm sleeping, but we said this is stupid. We need to bring them in. They briefed us on their program. We briefed them in because there was too much camaraderie there, not button heads or anything, but it was we needed to let them know that they're going to see something weird. That this is what the program is. So they they kept the secret just as well as we kept their secret. So. But it was a very interesting uh, operation. Highly, highly. How the hell did those guys get their hands on a MiG? Well, I don't know that story. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I can tell you this: I did. I did tell back to my OSI guy. He says, "What do you think you're going to do here?" And I, I did say, "I think I'm going to fly MiGs." He said, "Well, how do you know that?" And I said, "I don't know. I'm just guessing." You know. <laughs> right. But right. Did you guys ever out. do anything together just to see if the MiG would be capable of, you know, detecting or engaging with a one one seven? No, we never did. We did some tests with AWACS, uh, those kind of things, but we never did anything with the MIGs. But we did stuff with AWACS to see if they could pick up the airplane, those kind of things. And, uh, and of course, a lot of the stuff in the airplane, believe it or not, even though it's still flying out there right now, it's still somewhat classified what's on the airplane. But when they built the airplane, Ben Rich was pretty smart in engineers. They basically came around the diamond concept of the airplane, the angles to deflect the radar off. Yep. And they used off-the-shelf stuff that was available to uh, make the airplane work. We had uh, uh, F-18 engines internally. And then we had, uh, we had uh, I think it was F, uh, what was it, F-104 or something like that type gear. The avionics, we had B-52 inertial nav systems on board. Then we started bringing them on GPS. And, of course, when you go stealth, you can't have any antennas out there. So we had a little switch you could flip and you'd what we call we'd go stealth at that time. But to, to make sure that when we went off range, we'd act like we'd use our A7 call signs. And at the same time, we would keep our antennas out so they could see us. And of course, we're doing our transponder. And we'd say, I'm an Alpha 7, you know, when I went off range. So, and we're kind of flying the same speed of the A7 at that time to match it up. Right. And uh, so we had no suspicions of anybody thinking it was some different airplane out there. Of course, it's real dark. So there's there's got to be Russians running apartment units in in Tonopa, right? I mean, they've got to be there looking and waiting. <laughs> and if, like in the mountains, are you looking for binocular glints up in the mountains or anything like that? These guys got to be out there. 
Yeah, it's it. You know, a lot of the a lot of the area, for example, south of Tonopah, the the airport, there was some nuclear testing going up there in the flats and all that. So a lot of that stuff is still, you know, what, what I consider to be maybe somewhat hot still. Right. And so uh, you, you start getting down around the, uh, I guess, the area fifty one area. That's high security, and then. We're not even moving around that area, so we're doing some other stuff. Maybe and, for a second, let me let me tell you a story, and you can tell me if it's a very short story, and you can tell sure. me if I'm if I'm crazy or not. I took okay. my car down to the back gate. You get a little piece of paper from the alien, which is like this little this right. little uh, gift shop over there. They got a little UFO floating outside or whatever. They give you this little piece of paper. that says this is the way to get to the back gate of Area 51. You know who knows? I paid ten dollars for a sheet of Xerox paper when it was pretty fun. Drove my car out there pull up cameras everywhere just go well shit i'm obviously not supposed to be here turn my car around and leave and a jet buzzed me was that for me was that for me that did they come out for me or was it just coincidental uh well i've seen that happen okay uh i can't tell you the <laughs> amount of security that's around that whole area out there there's a lot of security out there there's gotta be. but it's uh, there's some interesting stuff and um that the the whole Nellis complex, uh, that whole area is a national treasure in my mind. Okay, so that's where we do a lot of our futuristic stuff. That's how the F thirty five, you know, the F twenty two came about, and so it's really nice to see the capabilities of the F twenty two and the F thirty five somewhat matching the stealth characteristics of the F one seventeen. Right, and and it's good to know that. When we when we stayed at Tonopah, I left there in ninety one. See, when did I leave there? Nineteen eighty six, June or July of eighty six. Um, the airplanes were there, and then they uh, were getting ready to go to Holloman. They moved them down there, and they came to thirty seventh wing. I was not part of that then. And then, of course, they went over to Desert Storm. Uh, the commander at the time of the Desert Storm operation, who was at Holloman, was a guy named Al Whitley great guy and he called me up and wanted me to uh come over and be a squadron commander uh one of the units he was bringing in older guys and at that time i was a uh, uh lieutenant colonel and i said sure i'm really highly interested in it well my my other boss <laughs> my other boss at the time uh was the wing commander of the eighth fighter wing very famous wing the wolf pack at kunson and he called me up and said i want you to come over here and be a squadron commander, 35th fighter squadron here in the Wolfpack. So I got kind of two offers. I was going to go to the stealth. And then when Desert Shield hit, uh, we were talking on classified phone, of course. And he said, I can't afford to change command in the middle of a possible go to war, which we obviously went out doing. Yep. And I said, I totally, totally understand. So obviously I was, I took the squadron commander job flying F-16s, which was a dream job at Kunsan. But, uh, a lot of great guys in that initial cadre. Uh, I would say, venture to guess, I know two, three, uh, a guy named Denny Larson, a great friend of mine. We flew F-4s together. Uh, he retired as a three-star. Uh, the DO, I think, retired as a two-star. Uh, one of our commanders, General Hal Estes, uh, at the time was a full colonel, the commander of the 4450s. He became a four-star, uh, ended up with space command. So... Uh, a lot of great individuals, great leaders in that operation. The pilots were great. Uh, I think most of the pilots at least made the uh, 06 or full colonel. Some went on to be squadron commanders, uh, and then 06s and things of that nature. 
I know my ex-commander, he became, I think he retired as a two-star. And so uh, they picked a lot of right people with the right personality uh, to get along. And, but everybody had a fighter pilot mentality. So we knew the mission, we knew what we needed to do, and we never lost sight of that mission. And we knew we wanted to get that airplane as quickly as possible up to combat capability because we knew we had something special here. So how did it, what were some of the op, the first operational missions that you went on? Was it, were the first ones in Panama, right? Yeah, I'd gone, I'd left at that time, but the first one, uh, they decided they wanted to go, go down to Panama to support that operation. And it's kind of, we have a joke there. It's kind of the first time we've asked the stealth to miss a target. And <laughs> <laughs> what they did is they hit a field out next to the barracks. Okay. So like a uh, shot across the bow kind of thing or what? Well, that was actually part of the operation, get rid of Noriega down there. And so, again, I wasn't there at that time. And But uh, it, it showed, nothing else, it showed the combat capability of being able to reach out and do something with it. But when we started building, I ended up, after handing off the safety program, I worked in the fighter weapons shop building the tactics for the airplane. And real the real story of the airplane came true when you saw Desert Storm. And uh, the first mission was go down and take out the, uh, the antennas that were sitting on the tall building in downtown Baghdad. And it was supposed to be right on time. And you can see uh, everybody in the, in the uh, compound there at the hack. And they were watching CNN and CNN went blank. And when they went blank, they knew that we'd hit the target. Right. <laughs> so, so it was, uh, but what you saw with the film with Schwarzkopf and, yep. I'm just uh, old enough. For, I'm I'm 40, so I'm just old enough to barely remember that when I was a little kid. Just be yeah, like, whoa. And that, and that's one thing I'm finding out. Being 70, I'm sitting there going, what do you mean you don't know anything about this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I'm, I'm finding kids that, you know, I don't even know what this program is. But I'm about but, the youngest that would remember that, I think. I remember okay. General Schwarzkopf, for sure. Oh, yeah, and uh, it, it was a great operation. But what you saw the 117 do is what it was designed to do in desert storm that's what we had planned for that's what we did out of the desert and it was nice to sit there i was assigned at headquarters pacific air forces at the time with uh on the staff of uh, uh general iverson who was a do at the time and it was interesting to brief and watch the mission go down we felt like the war would end in about 45 days and i think that's about what it came to but the um uh, but it wasn't just the stealth, but the stealth did its job as far as getting into the high value targets. Now, I will tell you a funny story here that you'll like. Uh, because I was at PACAF headquarters, Pacific Air Forces, I was also charged to incorporate the F-117s into the uh, battle plans for the AOR in the Pacific. So I ended up putting together a briefing and I'd go around and brief, uh, end up briefing third fleet commander, and people that I was supposed to brief, they told me I was cleared to brief. And then I went out to Korea and briefed the uh, Sink Unk, who at the time was a four-star Army guy. And I briefed the 7th Air Force commander who was supporting Korea there, where they still are. And the, uh, the funny story is that because of after Desert Storm, I still had my clearance. So I flew, got on key, flew back up to Tonopah. They were still there. And I went in to get an out brief on, okay, tell me lessons learned. How do I need to change anything uh, based on what we have on our current war plans for the Pacific? 
And he's showing me, the first night of the war, he's showing me this film. And of course, remember I said, everything is being filmed. He had a videotape BCHS that you could pull out and review your tape. Sure. And of course, you're also hearing yourself in the cockpit. And um, so the, the first guy goes and drops his bomb and you see all everything light up, all this AAA and, you know, you name it. And it's, I mean, it's a 4th of July in front of him. So the second guy drops his, and now it's really out there. The third guy is recording. He's run, You can hear him run his seat all the way down. He's sitting in front of his screen trying to focus on his target. And you hear him say, Lockheed, this shit better work. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think the first guy's got it pretty easy because nobody, I mean, at that point, they don't know you're coming. Second guy, yeah. the shit's going down. Third guy, I mean, yeah. it's got to be going down at that point. Yeah, he, it was funny to hear him just, you could hear that seat going down and that comedy he made was hilarious. And, uh, <laughs> but it was amazing out of all those sorties, not one scratch on a 117. Yeah, not for a long time. One guy got lucky, sounds like. Yeah, it did. And the Serbia launch, uh, you know, I've got my own opinions on, you know, it's, you, you kind of fly the same route every night, every day. And I'm not faulting anybody because of the political constraints, but uh, eventually you're going to get lucky with something. So, but the airplane uh, did its job. It was designed to do its job. And I feel very fortunate of being chosen to be part of that United States Air Force history and a program that I at the felt, as did many other people, felt had very, very high national uh, ramifications for defense. Yeah, I can't even emphasize that enough. I mean, you just, yeah. you just can't how important this program was to be to be first to stealth. And strangely, it sounds like the Russians didn't even really care about stealth at the time. Because they were so no. confident in their own air, in their radar and everything. Because their radar was better than ours, right? I mean, all that stuff they had going down over there with the, you know, with their air defenses. Well, their IADS, we call it integrated air defense system. It, it was a very formidable air defense system, and uh, but at the same time, they were relying a lot on surface-to-air missiles and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, as a result, the airplane itself could defeat that, and uh, it became obsolete. Like their entire defense became obsolete as soon as that plane was operational. Yeah. And one of the, one of the political questions that was always asked that we kind of saw a little bit, or at least I did, uh, is when do we choose to use the airplane? Because there's a chance you may lose one. So you have this situation where am I going to use it for deterrence or am I going to use it as a, I hate to say this word, but I'm going to say it anyway. Are you going to use it in an assassination bullet type of operation? Okay. Right. So as a result, um, there's that fine line. To, when do I really want to use the airplane? And um, I know that I can say this. I don't know if you remember Operation El Dorado the Canyon. It was a against Gaddafi. And uh, the F-111s had to go all the way around Gibraltar. And uh, they were attacking Libya. Uh, because of some uh, terrorist activity in Europe, and Reagan ordered that strike. I do know that about two weeks prior to that, uh, we were brought in to do some mission planning on that mission. And uh, at the time, I think the powers to be realized that probably for that target, it was not worth jeopardizing that asset in case we needed it for a bigger operation. Right, right. So, and so that's what they did. So it's, you know, when you build one of these programs and it's black world, it's nice to have that bullet in your back pocket knowing you've got that capability and that's what we did the national defense agency the president knew he had that capability just like he knew uh he had the sr-71 okay so 
you can go take an SR-71 around Mach 3 plus with it, buzz somebody's band. You just let them know, hey, we're here watching you. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> buzz was so, saying that it was the sound of freedom. They'd buzz yeah, right over people and just create the double sonic boom that that thing did because of the Delta wing. And it was yeah, the sound of freedom. It was, it's awesome. And, and so now, uh, after Desert Storm, everybody knew we had this thing. So now I think they call it the uh, Black Death is what, after the war, the Iraqis called it. But when you build something like this and it's in a black world, it, it becomes a real tug of war of when do I use it? Is the where I'm going to use it? Is it the risk based on something going to be bigger than I need to use it at? And so we found that that to be a very interesting uh, contemplation as far as the politicians were. But of course, we had Ronald Reagan and we all loved him. So, you know, he was really making our defense systems work. And our why did you guys look up to him so much as uh, as military guys? What was well, what was it about Ronald Reagan that you really looked well, up to? Well, he was the kind of guy that when he came in, of course, you know, the previous administration we had. And so when he came in, it was like, okay, there's there's a man in town, there's a new sheriff in town, and he thinks that the military, it's kind of like walk softly, but carry the big stick. Yep. And he made sure that the funding was there. Uh, but let me put this in perspective for you a little bit. Uh, and this is not to try to run down any presidents at all, but. When I first came back out of Korea in 1978, flying F-4s, I was assigned to Homestead, like I said. And um, when I first got there, I think uh, Jimmy Carter was the president. And it was not unheard of at our wing to brief at, say, 7 o'clock for a 9 o'clock takeoff. And we wouldn't get airborne maybe until 1 o'clock because we didn't have any parts. Right. So the budget constraint, but what, what Ronald Reagan brought was... He made sure the military was taken care of, had what they needed, and we saw a difference, a big difference in that. And so when you have that, somebody that's taking and looking out your back, that brings the morale way up in the defense department. So it right down to the common denominator or the common airman or the sailor out there, the Marine, the Coast Guardsman, they can see it when there's something out there that changes because it doesn't take much to see that change. But I liked Reagan. Everybody liked him. Because we knew that he meant business, and uh, but at the same time he took care of you. Yeah, I think I think he was a I was think he was a great president. I try not to get too political on this podcast, but in terms yeah, of what you guys good. were doing, it, yeah. he, he he was a good thing for you guys. And outside of the one seventeen, and you said you had kind of a, a dream job after you did that kind of thing. Are there any stories you want to tell us about flying F sixteens or anything else, or in Phantoms in the Korean War? Any other great stories <laughs> that you've got? I mean, I'd love to hear them. Well, um, we were told when we came out of the stealth program that we could have because of our who we were, um, we were told that we could have we could go fly any airplane we wanted. And so I actually had talked to General Estes, who at the time was a full colonel uh, at the time, wing commander. And I said, I want to go fly the SR-71. Yeah, why not? I mean, hell yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And so he kind of and I really thank him for this. He said, Jet, you've been in a black world. Now you're going to go back to a semi-black world. And he said, I can tell you that satellites are going to make the SR come a little bit obsolete. He says, but from the standpoint of your career in the Air Force, you, you, you kind of need to get back into the mainstream Air Force. You, you can't live your life totally in the black world. Was he right? So, yeah, he was right. So I listened to him. And uh, so I said, OK, I want an F-16. So sure enough, 
The next uh, unit to convert to the F-16 was the 347th Tech Fighter Wing down in Valdosta, Georgia, which ironically was a TAC base at the time, Tactical Air Command, a fighter base with F-4s, getting ready to transition the F-16s. And Buzz Carpenter, which is where I first met Buzz, was the squadron commander of the 70th Tech Fighter Squadron where I was assigned. And at the time, uh, I went there, and I was like the second guy to fly the F-16. There was another guy named Scott. I think his name was Scotty Krebs. He flew the first mission. And I remember Buzz. <laughs> we had we had two F-16s on the ramp, and he throw, he drives me out in the car because I'm going to go go fly a mission, single-ship mission on F-16. And Buzz looks at me and says, Jed, I have no idea what you're doing, but be careful and be safe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he wasn't even checked out in the airplane, but... Buzz was a fun commander to work for. The F-16s, uh, you know, people always ask you, what's your favorite fighter? And I've got to tell you, when I first came out of, when I came first came out of uh, going to flight school at the Air Force, and I was doing it at Valdosta, Georgia. It was a UPT base, our undergraduate pilot training base. I really wanted an F-105. And I'll tell you, if you haven't yet, you need to find yourself an F-105 Thud pilot who flew 100 missions over North Vietnam. Because let me tell you, uh, those guys are my heroes. Those guys taking it north with the restrictions put on them and going up there, uh, the F-105 Thud drivers were just absolutely my heroes. And I still think the most sacred patch in the United States Air Force right now is it says 100 missions, North Vietnam, Thud. And there's uh, there's a, a lot of those guys. There's some good stuff you can look up on who the thud drivers are. I can send you a text and give you a couple of names. You'll be more than happy. Some of them written sure. books. But I'm telling you, those guys are great. Unfortunately, I quit giving thuds about three classes because I was active duty. They still had them in reserve. I was lucky enough to finish high enough in the class to get an F-4. And so back to my original statement, what's your favorite airplane? I always tell you that your first most favorite airplane is the first fighter you flew, and it's still got to be the Phantom. Yeah, there was nothing like the F four Phantom raw power. You know, F sixteen can outturn it. I mean, yeah, but it's like it just had brute power. I mean, you know, we used to clean the J seventy nines off. You could throw uh, shells in the in the inlets, and that would clean up the blades. I mean, it would eat stuff, and the airplane would bring you home. But uh, and I want to tell you something that that was probably my favorite airplane. I did a little bit operational. With the wild weasel suppression in the air, if you've ever heard of that term, I've the, uh, I've heard the term wild weasel brought up. Yeah, yeah, and our job was to go find out, go find service air missile sites and take them out. So it's kind of like looking for a gunfight. You know what I'm saying? So just like walking they, around in a dark alley with a knife in your hand. <laughs> yeah, and so that was our job, and then to try to put them down before the strike package came in. But uh, there were some great guys, the 105s. They kind of started out with 100s, and there's a whole story with wild weasels, but the 105s really kind of blew the program up, so to speak, made it what it was. Um, but, uh, again, I would stress, if you can get your hands on a guy that flew, and I can give you some names, that flew the F-105 over North Vietnam, I mean, just phenomenal, phenomenal pilots with 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 brass you know what <laughs> yeah I, I i'd be interested in, in talking to those guys for sure i feel like as we've gone on in time since world war ii world war ii there was a lot of dog fighting i think right i mean there's a lot of really face-to-face -face, i mean blood on blood right the real shit right and then right. as time has gone on especially as you get into modern time there's less and less pilots who have had real dog fighting engagements right where it's really just 
one guy yeah. versus another guy or a few guys versus another few guys. It just doesn't yeah. seem to happen as much anymore. Well, one of my heroes, uh, one of my heroes in the Vietnam War was a guy named Robin Olds. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away a few years back. But uh, he did, he led an operation during uh, in the North Vietnam Congo, Operation Bolo, because what would typically happen with the North Vietnamese is they run two strikes a day, 105 strike packages. Everybody had their own call signs and all. And so the 105s had their call signs. So Robin came up with an idea with the MIGs that they wanted to do a MIG sweep. So he they put the F-105s down for the day. They launched the F-4s for air-to-air operations, and they used the F-105 call signs, and they went out, and the MIGs came up, and uh, let's just say the MIGs uh, didn't do too well. <laughs> So they didn't uh, get what they thought they ordered. That's for sure. No, no. So a little deception there, but uh, the F4 was great. Now the F16, you know, a lot of people have different opinions on it. I, I'm not seeing anything wrong with the F16. I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. I was that a digital based plane. Like the, like the one, one seven would had digital, like the inputs were all yep. digital. Yeah. It, it, uh, it's all fly by wire. Fly by okay. wire. That's it. And then that phantom, obviously that's not right. That's yeah, old school. Yeah, it was hydraulics, you know, root strength and that kind of thing. But, but we had still 3000 PSI on the hydraulics. So, you know, what real, you know, wasn't like they're trying to pull out of a dive or something with, you know, frozen flight controls, but, right. but the, uh, the F 16, man, what a machine, uh, you know, it was designed initially, uh, to be a lightweight fighter to complement the F 15 with its big radar. And then, uh, well, maybe some people don't know is that we needed this lightweight fighter. So there was a flyout between the YF-16 and the YF-17. Okay. The YF-17 was twin engine. The YF-16 was single engine. What we found out was we chose the 16 because we could get longer legs with it as far as range right. versus the YF-17. Now, what some people may not know in your podcast is the YF-17 eventually became the F-18 Hornet. Okay. And so uh, it still survived what it needed to with the Navy. Uh, and the F-18 is a great airplane. Uh, but it didn't serve the needs of the Air Force at the time because of the, it didn't have the range that we needed. Whereas maybe a carrier might be able to get a little closer or something. But the uh, range is one of the restrictions that we had. Uh, we were looking for in a strike. And then we found the airplane was so capable, it took on the role of the F-4. And the role of the F-4 was... If you were in an F-4 unit, your primary mission was air to ground. Then you come out and you do air to air. Uh, some units were primary air to air, and that's what they did. The F-16, we found, could carry bombs very efficiently. Our typical load would be two, what we call paramount, two 2,000 pounders. And that would give us the best drag and capability. You're dropping 4,000 pounds of weapons. And then you've got AMRAM sitting on there, and you've got uh, uh, AIM-9 sitting on there. So you come off the target and swing, and you're ready to now go look for uh, air-to-air operations. So what's your most, when you look back, and you look at your time in, the, in, the, in all the planes that you flew, what was your most memorable operational mission as you look back on it? Oh, boy, it's hard to say. Um, you know, I didn't really get into a lot of combat operations. Um, how I missed that, I have no clue. But uh, I do remember the day that in 1976 we were. I was at Kadena Air Base, and I was with. I was a uh, a lieutenant. I think it was 76. And these two Army officers, Boniface, and I can't remember the other gentleman's name, 
they went into the DMZ to trim a tree. And you can look it up. It's called Operation Paul Bunyan. Okay. And I have a feeling trim a tree doesn't mean trim a tree. Yeah, it was actually trim a tree. Yeah, they went into the DMZ or in the trim a tree because they couldn't see it. <laughs> and so the North Koreans came out in a truck and they basically started axing them to death. Jeez. And, and Gerald Ford was the president then. And all of a sudden, uh, the balloon went up, so to speak. And so uh, we brought in, we deployed wild weasels. We deployed from Kadena to, to Korea. We started bringing other assets from the United States and we built a major force up. We brought some of the, uh, I believe some of the seventh fleet in there as well. And so Gerald Ford was making a statement and the day they cut that tree down, <laughs> I mean, I was there airborne with a flight of four and the biggest threat we had, we had these Florida air controllers that were controlling us and we had them stacked left to right back behind us. To me, the biggest threat was running into another flight. <laughs> right. There was so much air power up there. It was unbelievable. But uh, prior to that operation, uh, we started bringing B-52s into the AOR. We rendezvous with them on the East Coast off the Sea of Japan when this tree thing was going on. Uh, one of the tensions were still mounting. We'd swing with them. We'd come right up, the, right barely on the south part of the uh, DMZ. And we were just told to, to escort the B-52s. And as I get onto the west side of the Korean Peninsula, a bunch of water and some islands down there, the bomb bays open up, and here comes the weapons, and out they go. And I'm going, man, did I miss the war? Is the war started? We don't know something. And this was live, live bombs coming out of these B-52s. And so it was a signal to the North Korean, not, uh, North Koreans that these babies were loaded, and we met business. So uh, the North Koreans didn't do anything when we chopped that tree down. They went in there and chopped it totally down. Uh, but again, it's Operation Paul Bunyan, a very interesting. And that was one of my more interesting uh, the stories of doing that stuff, other than some of the stuff I did in the stealth that I can't really talk about. So. Yeah, what's what's interesting is that a lot of the you look at the 117, they're still flying the thing. Yeah, uh, it's and so the reason they've got they're flying it is because they must either they need it for something or they're testing something in it that we well, that we can't know that you don't know that I don't know who knows nobody knows. And, they're well, st- and it's still there. It's still flying around, which is unbelievable. Well, they went back and after they took them, they took them out, my understanding is, because yep. they needed operational money for the uh, 35 F-22 OTNE or operational money. And they put them all back at where they started at Tonopah Test Range in the uh, environmentally friendly hangars. I think we bought 54 of the airplanes. I know we lost two or three or four. So there's got to be, and some of them are showing up, uh, uh, at different museums. I know there's one at Wright Pat when I went to the Air Force Museum. And uh, I went to Palm Springs High School in California, even though I'm from Georgia. My dad was career military. And I found out they got one and I got a hold of that museum and said, hey, you know, there is a connection there. I went to Palm Springs High School. So they want to talk to me. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, then there's the, one at the Reagan Library too. Yes. And so um, I don't know what they're doing with it, but I do know that uh, if you can believe what everybody says, the, the footprint or the radar signature of the 117, probably about the same as the F-22, F-35. Which now, I know that I Ben know Rich that. would roll a marble across the table is what I read. He'd roll a marble across the table. And he's like, do you want your plane to have this radar signature or do you want it to be the size of a school bus? Yeah, exactly. And so uh, I can't tell you what it is because that's still classified, but <laughs> I can tell you it's pretty low and 
Uh, I would not be surprised. It could be doing a lot of different things. Uh, uh, I would hope that we have something that's a little more exotic that's out there in the black world. Oh, I'm sure we do, man. And I bet all, all the guts of it are probably in that 117, and we just don't know. That's my guess. It was, well, it's uh, it's an, also a known quantity, right? It's been... Yeah. We know how it in- interacts when it was in Iraq, which is one of the most defended cities ever. All the radar right. stuff that went on there, all the data that we've got, it's a known quantity for us to use for benchmarking other projects. It really, it really is. And uh, it, it was such a fun project to be of. It was a proud project to be of. And and uh, it was neat. The only thing I was sad was that the, the, the initial cadre-wise were not able to go up and see the airplane now. When I was at uh, Korea as a squadron commander, my wife stayed back when I was at headquarters pack at my base, and she got a hold of General Iverson. I called him, and he escorted her out to see the airplane, and my kids saw it for the first time. Man, that uh, must have been crazy. It was an amazing airplane. It's about the size of an F-15. Right. So it's not a real small airplane, but, uh, but that has to be the highlight of my career as far as being able to bring that airplane and give it to the American people, knowing that even though you couldn't talk about it, you know, we had what we thought was one up on the enemy. So, well, it sounds like you had a lot of sisters and brothers that were all patriots. Uh, I can't, I can't say enough about the fellow pilots that I served with the commanders. I served with general Creech is still my hero. Uh, not for just that, but what he did for tactical air command and, uh, just, just the, the people, of course, is what makes the business. It's the people I, I retired and went to work for Federal Express, uh, flying for them for 18 years. And uh, I felt the same way about FedEx. They, they just a very class operation run by uh, Fred Smith there. And I can't say nothing about it, but it was almost that same military mindset, if you know what I mean. Get that, get those packages where they needed to be. But the the people, and I, and I tell pilots that are coming out of the Air Force that they like to serve for 20 or 26 years or just a 10-year commitment, I said, what you're going to miss is the people. You're going to miss the people because serving in a military squadron, especially with pilots or the Navy would call aviators, um, you can't replicate that in the civilian world. It just can't be done. Well, that's just the stakes. It's the contrast of the stakes being so high. You'll never find that in regular it's life. Really, it's really the epitome of the band of brothers, as we say. Mm-hmm. Um. Since you worked for FedEx, I just popped into my head. What did you think about when uh, they crashed one in Castaway? Was it? <laughs> that's, a funny, that's a funny story, too. Yeah, I remember the Hollywood aspects of this now. But um, uh, I, we did, you know, we have an air op- we had an air operations center there at AOC. And uh, we heard they were going to do a movie, and Tom Hanks was going to be in charge of And he actually would come down. Uh, and if you want to see how the real FedEx operates, you need to be in the AOC at around 2, 2.30 in the morning, even though it's now almost a 24-7 operation. But he would come down, and he wanted to get a flavor of how, how FedEx operated and all of that good stuff. So from the standpoint of the movie itself and portraying how FedEx operated, I thought they did a pretty good job. He did a good job. Now, as far as the crash goes, yeah. <laughs> When he pops up and there's that engine still running behind him, you know, <laughs> right, right, and that MD11. But uh, but what they portrayed about FedEx there, I think they did a very good job, and uh, uh, and they tried to portray the AOC best they can, even though it was daylight. Uh, but uh, I, I was actually not too disappointed in the movie, to be honest with you. 
Uh, well, Jed, I think we're, I think we're going to let you go. I thank you for, you know, I, as, as a civilian and a guy who tried to get into the military, but had too much asthma and astigmatism. Um, yeah. I, I thank you so much for your service and what you brought and that you worked on this program and is it's, it's an incredible story and it's an integral part of not just American history, but world history and human history. Well, the other thing I tell people, and I appreciate that. I tell people that God gave me talent. I think he gives talent to everybody. It's just a matter of finding that talent. And I was lucky enough that God gave me the talent to fly fighters and then fly airplanes. And now retired at 70, I'm out still teaching young kids how to fly, uh, get a private pilot license just to keep air under my fanny. You got to do it. You got to keep on, man. You got to keep on. You got to keep the brain active. But I, I tell you, it was a pleasure it was an honor serving this country, basically the presidents we served, but and the and the fellow commanders. It it was really, really, really an honor. Well, it's been my honor to talk to you, and I really appreciate you coming on. Well, our pleasure. And uh, anytime you need something else, give me a call. We'll do, sir. Take care of yourself. All right, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Yep. Bye bye. Bye bye. Many thanks to uh, Jet for coming on the podcast. Super cool. I I hope uh, I can talk. To, you know, it's 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 kind of a bummer because you hear about all these other like angles that you could play on this story right. and all these other pilots that you could talk to other angles yeah, on other, this plane uh, on this. <laughs> <laughs> Are you making more puns without realizing it? Yes. There's more angles to be played <laughs> yes, on, exactly. on this, on this. And it's, I want to, there's talk so to many more stories, right? We're going to circle back to this at some point. We're going to bring back some of the stories and, and reach out to the, some, some of the people that I've learned about doing this, uh, doing this project. Next week, we have Scott Stimpert on. So uh, Jet was one of the original right? one of the original pilots of this. Right. Scott actually flew Unexpected Guest, which is... One of the famous airframes. Yeah, it is the, it is the most operationally flown Nighthawk, and wow. it is on display at the Reagan Library. Well, that's all we have time for today. We look forward to seeing you guys on Friday and then next Monday when we cap off this Skunk Works series. We hope that you've enjoyed it as much as we have. We'll see you next week. Take care.